Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 45 in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday, December the 11th. First, I'll be talking to Tommy Huppert, founder and CEO of medicinal cannabis company Canatrek, which is developing export markets for Australian medicinal cannabis. And I'll be talking to IFM Investors economist Alex Joyner about the latest GDP figures and the state of the Australian economy moving forward. But now, let's talk to Tommy Hubbard. Tommy, Canatrack now has a production facility in Shepparton, and you've identified several strains of medicinal cannabis, and uh, you've just secured an export license to the UK, and you've done it so quickly. How'd you do it? Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Oh, I believe in miracles. You know, it, we're dealing with this is not rocket science. I would say the bureaucracy is probably rocket science. It's been a hard journey, but, you know, fantastic team. It's all about the people, Leon. I've got a very loyal, passionate and brilliant team uh, who, are, who are just love taking care of the, the plants. There's a lot of R&D, hard labour, hard work, tremendous effort by Team Canatrek. That's fantastic. Now, uh, this medicinal cannabis is to treat what sort of illnesses? Oh, we're, we're finding that it's, it's touching a tremendous array of medical indications from sleep assistance to movement, mental health, 
palliative care even uh, we're seeing treatment in uh, difficult diseases whether it's cancer treatments so autism women's health men's health it, it's endless and i think the best way to describe it is over 100 years ago the cannabis plant was one of the main ingredients in pharmacopoeia the classic story is if you go to ballarat you'll look on the shelf you'll see in the pharmacy you know a bottle of cannabis sativa oil they were probably growing it out the back of the pharmacy and mixing it and, and providing tinctures, just like a compound pharmacy today. It's pretty simple today. Uh, you, you go to a pharmacy, you hand over your script and uh, identification, and you, you leave with your purchase. Is that right? That is uh, like any other medicine. We're seeing far more convenience being included, whether it's eScript, which rolled out a month ago, or telehealth, where you can visit your doctor via this forum as we're talking now and all the way for the medication to be delivered securely to your door. And I think the, the last nine months in Australia certainly uh, triggered lots of innovation in the delivery of healthcare, which is here to stay forever. Well, well tell us about the uh, R&D that goes into growing cannabis plants. The most important aspect of, of a successful operation is the quality of your genetics. There's hundreds and thousands of different types of plants just like you know you have all different types of tomatoes or apples we're trying to find the plant which is really sturdy that can uh, survive through extreme weather events which happen every few days in australia where it's too hot too cold so we're, 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 we're creating this stable environment in the greenhouse you can see behind me there's a lot of fans and screens and and irrigation so the the key is to have those stable genetic lines that we can predict and always produce a, a sturdy plant. So it would be important to have it for each crop cycle? Yeah, so traditionally we, we grow from seed and then we pick out the most robust plants and then we clone those plants. It's a bit like, you know, your kids, they all look a little bit different. If you have twins there, they can look almost identical. So we're actually trying to create identical plants because then they flower at the same time we're trying to choose the plants which are more pest resistant. And we have a lot of biological uh, creatures in our greenhouse. We don't use pesticides at all. So we're really trying to replicate mother nature. And uh, how many do you have working for you now? We have around 20 people in our site up in Queensland, which is a really neat size. So not too big, not too small. It enables us to test a lot of our systems. Uh, we're, we're looking at different types of lighting, of LED irrigation you know we're, we're grabbing mass data so we can scale up in a Shepparton facility which is uh, very exciting as the industry is, is is really getting up on its feet and how many do you have employed out at Shepparton? Uh, Shepparton is still a, a greenfield site we haven't started construction we've we've been doing all the preparation that you do before you build your home architecture permits etc power connection so that's all lined up really well so when do you expect the Shepparton site will be up and producing we hope to start the site works early next year it will take a good 12 months so early 2022 but meanwhile we're in full perpetual production so we're in a really nice sweet spot Canatrek. Uh, we've had some tremendous successes on on sales this year we've, we've already reached a record this month and it's not over we are taking care of over 3,000 patients. Uh, we have a, 
uh, a referral service which we are, we started last week called Canatrek Access, where we we take inbound inquiries where patients are looking for the appropriate medicinal cannabis prescriber, and we're pointing those inquiries to the appropriate doctors. So it's 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 very exciting um, development that we're be producing and and releasing Australian-made medicinal cannabis. And it's very timely too, occurring during the time of the pandemic. Well, we've seen a big spike in a lot of the illnesses, which may provide an insight for traditional use of, of medicinal cannabis. Um, mental health, unfortunately, anxiety, uh, uh, things which we've seen spike. Do they help? We are, we are finding out there's, there's mo most of the prescriptions are going for pain, chronic pain, the sore back, you know, inflammation, and people are making an informed decision. Patients are doing their research and going to their doctor and saying, what about medicinal cannabis? And the doctors are now becoming more fait and more comfortable with prescribing a non-registered medicine. And the results have been quite extraordinary from patients. So, so how much, how much uh, products have you actually sold in Australia so far? We've sold over 20,000 units over the last two years. So we, we see, you know, over a hundred scripts coming through our, uh, our team every week and they're, they're increasing. So we're seeing this organic lift in people's understanding of medicinal cannabis, doctor's appreciation for applying for approvals for this new medicine. So it, it's moving quite quickly. And, and I would say even exponentially, it used to take three months to get an approval now takes a day or two, or even sometimes on the same day. So doctors are quite uh, familiar with it, quite cognizant of, of uh, the properties of medicinal cannabis now. Yeah, well, we're, we're hearing every day. If, if you do a Google, you'll find an article almost daily in the, in the press. So there's certainly an awareness and we're seeing far more, I would say, there's less stigma and there's more uh, curiosity is the word I'm looking for, for trying a natural product. And, uh, and you've secured a, an export license to Austral Health in the UK. Yeah, we've been very fortunate to create a pipeline of export. Um, the products will, which is herbal cannabis will leave uh, shortly to the UK where they will, it will, will be used in a, in a part of a observational trial where herbal cannabis is a, a similar to Australia, non-listed, but patients are willing with doctors uh, um, providing care. That's, that's quite exciting. And uh, do, you see, do you see an export market developing there? Yeah, so the UK, you know, twice the population as Australia or more. Um, they're probably about a year behind where we are. So we see a tremendous opportunity. They, they are looking for imported products because they're not producing like we in Australia. So there is definitely an opportunity for Canatrek to, to succeed in, in new markets. Well, that'd be quite exciting. And uh, you, you'd have other countries too, wouldn't you? Yes, we are, we're also in dialogue with a number of other European countries, Germany, Poland, Czech Republic, Italy. Um, it, we're seeing literally nation by nation look at medicinal cannabis as part of their medical uh, array of, of of options for patients. Well, that's, that's, that's pretty exciting. So um, what's the next stage for Canatrick after this? Well, uh, the next stage of, of, of for Canatrick is to 
bring local production to Australian patients and really pivot from an importer predominantly to a, a local producer and also uh, provide the um, beginning of our scaled opportunity where we are, are also not just a seed to patient business, but uh, we, we want to be in profit too. So uh, sometimes we coin seed to profit. It's been a, a challenge, I think, for most companies in the world, but we've got a real opportunity to take care of patients and provide an affordable option for them. So I think 2021 will be an exciting year for the industry in Canatrek. Well, it'll be fascinating to watch and uh, let's keep in touch, Tommy. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure today and um, uh, thanks very much, Leon. And now let's talk to IFM Investors economist, Alex Joyner. Well, Alex, the Australian economy has uh, pulled out of recession with the latest GDP numbers, but that's technically pulled out of recession. It's, uh, it, the economy is, what, uh, 3.8% smaller than it was before and you know, we've still got uh, restrictions on travel and immigration, so population is not going to rise. And as well as that, uh, we've got need for fiscal, ongoing fiscal and monetary support, as just uh, by Philip Lowe. What's your view about this? Yeah, so we did get the uh, national accounts for the third quarter, Leon, and, and they did have some surprisingly good news, and, and that's what the headlines were reflecting. You know, the Australian economy grew... 3.3% in the third quarter. Now, that was better than expected um, and certainly better than was expected at the time of the Victorian lockdowns. So when they uh, we entered stage four and they became very, very strict, you know, there was some quite dire predictions about this third quarter and it could be a negative. Now, as it turned out, Victoria in terms of its state final demand that's measured in the national accounts, actually only went back 1% in the third quarter. And I think economists had been expecting a much, much bigger impact. That's not to say that those uh, that that's a good result, but it was relatively good compared to what we're thinking. New South Wales and uh, Queensland, by contrast, uh, expanded 6.8% in the quarter. So obviously, as restrictions lifted, the rest of the country has has bounced out of COVID restrictions and, and seen that growth. Yes, we are technically out of recession. The headlines sort of trumpeted that quite quite far and wide. I guess that is that is technically true in that in that definition, but there are many other definitions of recession. And the one that I would probably focus on in this regard, and I think the one that you know policymakers are actually looking at, is just looking at the labour market and where we're sitting there. Uh, you know, we have an unemployment rate that's seven percent, much higher than we would like it, and we're in a situation where you know that has yet to appreciably come down, um, and that will be the measure of how well we do coming out of this. Is how well we can get that unemployment rate down, and as you say. You know, that may become more difficult because, you know, we are still in an economy that is around about 4% smaller than it was. And the next iteration of growth is going to be a little bit more difficult. You know, we're going to get a little bit more of a tailwind in Q4 because of Victoria opening up again and becoming positive again. So that's good in Q4. But as we enter 2021, you know, we should still get growth. But it is becoming more difficult to generate because some of the important sectors of growth, you know, this is tourism, education, you know, population growth, all these things that rely on people coming from overseas to Australia to spend money. We know that they won't have opened, at least in the first 
half of next year, you know, optimistically, maybe the second half of next year. And that's where markets are really pricing in some pretty good news around vaccines, particularly, you know, the US stock market, which continues to push to to record highs, is really pricing in some very good news on vaccines. Now, Australia is seemingly just sitting back and waiting. We're actually in the enviable position, I think, of having the virus under control, we, we can continue to open up our economy and then sit back and look at the UK and the US that are rushing to employ the vaccine because they have case numbers that are very, very high. So we'll have that luxury through our summer to just see a, a real world deployment of the vaccine. Uh, and hopefully we can learn from that when it comes our turn next year and, and, and do it successfully to open up our country. There are a whole lot of other issues with other economies, for example, I mean, in the US, uh, you know, you've got uh, advanced stages of coronavirus. Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the US, but there's a lot of political uncertainty because of the Senate outcome. We don't know how that's going to go and, you know, whether they're going to have fiscal stimulus. And uh, so there's problematic there. And, uh, of course, uh, the UK economy is uh, also going through its issues as well. Well, that's right. It's, it's, a very, it's interesting that Australia, with its 3.3% expansion in the third quarter, has underperformed the global average or the global median, I should say. You know, we've seen economies, the UK bounced 15% in the third quarter, Europe uh, 12.5%, the US 7.4% because they opened up quickly and are now paying the price for that. Interestingly enough, you would expect Australia to outperform uh, in the fourth quarter and, you know, the US to struggle with growth, uh, the UK to struggle with growth and the Eurozone to actually record a negative quarter in the fourth quarter. That's what most people are, are thinking. So they've, they've got a bumpier path going into 2021, whereas Australia might have a little bit more of a consistent path. The other issue, as you say, quite rightly in the US is the uncertainty around not the election result. I think we've, we've settled on that Joe Biden is going to be the uh, president uh, come January 20 next year. It is around the fiscal package uh, that is desperately needed. When we talk about fiscal cliffs in Australia and we worry about those sort of things, you know, the government has been receptive to those concerns insofar as it has extended things like JobKeeper and JobSeeker. Now, they might be in a little bit of a different form, but they have been extended. And I would expect them to be extended again. What you have in the US is a, a much more adversarial political situation where you know the Republicans and Democrats are, are very much uh, seeing the way forward on fiscal stimulus differently. Um, and you know we were talking you know perhaps a month or two ago about fiscal stimulus packages of two trillion dollars. Now we're talking about half a trillion, maybe one trillion. We hope to get through before the inauguration, but I think those hopes are fading. And, you know, we have a situation where, you know, hopefully we get some sort of reset after the inauguration and we do get this fiscal uh, situation through. But if the Senate goes the way of the Republicans with all these runoff elections and these sorts of things, then, you know, you could expect a a little bit more of an adversarial situation in the US and, and not be able to get the fiscal stimulus package through that is needed. And when I say it's needed, it is needed in the near term, because a lot of people fall off the US's equivalent of the JobKeeper, uh, and they don't get that income support. And that is obviously something that will impact the US economy, which is so heavily reliant on, on retail and the consumer as we go into the new year. Back to Australia, and RBA Governor Philip Lowe said unemployment would peak at 8% or 7%. And he said 
the recovery was very patchy and uneven. While some sectors were doing very well, others weren't doing that well. And I would say to get unemployment down to 5% would be a lot harder. While the latest job figures are very good, that came as a result of the economy opening up, and that was a low-hanging fruit. What would you say to that? Yes, that's right. Um, so, you know, we've done we've done well on the labour market, surprisingly well. Uh, you know, it, it emboldens Phil Lowe uh, and the board in their in their December press release to say, you know, the labour market has been, you know, strong, stronger than expected. Probably a little bit too glass half full for me. Yes, like you say, low hanging fruit. Uh, this is not jobs created like the government like to talk about. This is jobs returned to. Uh, these aren't new jobs. These are just jobs that were vacant. People had stepped away from because of the public health crisis. Now, I think the other thing that we need to be aware of is at some point the government will open up the borders and we will return to some measure of population growth. And this was really the challenge and the headwind before the coronavirus for the Reserve Bank to get the unemployment rate as low as they needed it to generate wages. It was this labour supply was more than adequate to meet labour demand. So we created lots of jobs. We just had people, lots of people wanting jobs. So we couldn't get the unemployment rate lower. What most central banks around the world have now acknowledged is moving from this Nehru or a full measure of employment to, uh, in the Fed's uh, vernacular, maximum employment. Now, you know, I think it's very well acknowledged before the crisis that we needed the unemployment rate below 5% to generate uh, any sustainable wage growth in Australia. I think we were moving to the point where we needed it at 4%. That's where, that's the sort of the ballpark that we need the unemployment rate at. Now, the problem with that is the Reserve Bank can't really do that by itself. Uh, we've seen that. We've seen that before the crisis and, and we'll see it now. I, I don't really think, well, I'm less than convinced than, than perhaps the Reserve Bank is that QE programs, very low bond yields, very low policy rates will actually generate enough jobs in the Australian context. Where I worry about it uh, in, in one or two years' time is that we'll have this stubbornly high unemployment rate that's around about sort of five and a half, six percent because what the government has also said, and you know, I hope that they revisit this, is that they will start more proactively uh, removing fiscal support from the economy once the unemployment rate hits six percent. Now, I don't think that's low enough. You know, if you if you look forward a couple of years to when the Reserve Bank and the government think this is going to happen, uh, the unemployment rate hits 6%. The government starts removing fiscal policy support. Monetary policy support can probably give no more. How do you get uh, an unemployment rate down from that 6% to 4%? You know, the, the economy will need to be flying for that to occur with just momentum and and you have contractionary fiscal policy working against that. So I, I don't believe that that will be the case myself. So that's where I worry about the economy will recover, but we're not moving to something better. Um, you know, I think the government will be have to be far more, far more proactive in getting the unemployment rate down to help the Reserve Bank, who are just going to have to keep their policy settings entrenched, to get the unemployment rate down to where we want it to get the wages growth that we desire. And, and Phil Lowe has talked about uh, a wages growth number, you know, that 3.5% year on year, if they are to get inflation back at the bottom of the target band noting that the RBA has failed in this over the last 20 quarters to get trim mean inflation year on year at the bottom of their target band. They're failing at their mandate. So they need this wages growth to meet their mandate. And I just don't think that they can do that by themselves.
And so we're going to have to have more proactive government support to get unemployment down. That means keeping on supporting job seeker and job keeper and any other programs that they might. I think it's really about job creation uh, rather than labour market support. So, you know, this is allowing businesses to invest uh, and employ and have a certain outlook. Um, you know, the Reserve Bank certainly provided that, telling the market that it thinks interest rates are going to be low for an extended period of time, three years. So the government needs to sort of do these things as well. So I think it's less about labour market support and more about small business and business incentives um, to get people hiring again, get people a little bit more confident in the outlook. And, and this is sort of going to need reforms. And, and this is what we sort of want to see the government moving towards. You know, we, we know that in, in, the, in the context of the broad sort of church of, of fiscal policies that can be enacted, the spending ones are quite easy. You know, tax cuts are quite easy. You sort of, that's just spending. That's just, you know, the government's got a free hit on what the deficit's going to be over the next couple of years. So they're, they're quite easy. Where, where it becomes more difficult is enacting reforms. They're difficult to sell to the electorate. They're difficult to get through parliament. So I think that's really the challenge for fiscal policymakers who are, to my mind, not only taking over the the mantle of fiscal management in the near term and through this crisis, but they'll be doing it for many, many years to come because we know central banks around the world are, are sidelined, well, not, not sidelined in, in what they can do. They can certainly do more, but I'm not sure they can do more that's effective uh, and not sure that they can do more that's effective outside pushing up asset prices, which we see in the US with their equity market and what we're going to see in Australia with the Australian housing market look, looking to gather some momentum, shall we say, uh, in, in 2021. Well, Alex, that's fascinating stuff and uh, certainly something we have to watch out for for next year. And uh, thank you very much for your time. Anytime, Leon. Uh, my pleasure. So what's happening in the news? Well, first, the good news. The Westpac Melbourne Institute of Consumer Sentiment lifted by 4.1% to 112 in December from 1077 in November. The surge in the index continues. It is now 48% above the low in April and has reached its highest level since October 2010, marking a 10-year high. After only eight months, the evidence seems clear that sentiment has fully recovered from the COVID recession. The behaviour of the index highlights a difference between this recession the downturn during the global financial crisis and the recession of the early 1990s. And businesses are the most confident they've been for more than two years, with corporate sentiment buoyed by growing evidence of a national COVID-19 economic comeback, tumbling into state borders and Victoria's much-delayed reopening. NAB's Business Confidence Index lifted for the fourth consecutive month in November, climbing 9 points to 12 points, pushing above the long-term average and far higher than the neutral zero level, which represents a balance between optimists with pessimists. The index dropped to more than 60 points below zero at the height of the pandemic, but has since recovered at a rapid pace and now sits at its highest level since January 2018. And Victoria's reopening has sparked an acceleration in the job ads recovery through October and November, with ANZ job ads up 27% over the two-month period. ANZ job ads are on track to match or even exceed pre-COVID levels by year-end. This suggests that the rebound in national employment could continue into early 2021 at least, although the lag recovery in full-time employment remains a concern. And Victoria and New South Wales have lost their prized AAA credit ratings, with ratings agency S&P Global downgrading both states on Monday in moves that put a cloud over the federal government's own AAA rating. 
S&P Global cut its long-term rating on Victoria by two notches to AA stable from AAA watch negative, citing a weaker fiscal outlook. The prolonged lockdown in the state due to two coronavirus outbreaks this year has led to more significant effect on the state's economy than elsewhere in Australia, and the government's path to fiscal repair would be more challenging, the International Ratings Agency said. But in something of a surprise, New South Wales also lost its coveted AAA rating. The state's long-term issue credit rating fell one notch to AA-plus stable from AAA negative as a coronavirus pandemic slashed revenue projections and fuelled public spending on New South Wales' large infrastructure program. The stable outlook reflects S&P's expectation that New South Wales' budgetary performance will improve during the next few years as the economy climbs out of a COVID-19-induced recession. But new borrowings will see New South Wales' debt rise substantially to level consistent with AA-plus rated peers. Meanwhile, S&P said Victoria's operating and after-capital accounts deficits and debt burden had deteriorated sharply as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, mobility restrictions and a big spending budget. Victoria's debt is expected to reach about 200% of operating revenue in 2023, up from 70% in 2019. Victoria's after-capital account deficit was expected to remain large and debt levels were expected to be elevated for many years, S&P said. S&P also removed Victoria from Credit Watch negative and said its outlook was now stable. Before this downgrade, Victoria was one of few state governments globally with a AAA rating. And the Morrison government has unveiled controversial legislation that will see casual workers able to apply for permanent roles after a year in the job, but remove the right of misclassified employees to claim billions in back pay. Employers will be required to offer part-time or full-time roles to people after 12 months if they've worked a regular pattern of hours for the previous six months and could continue without a significant adjustment to hours. Employers will retain a right to refuse if they have reasonable grounds to do so. Unions warn the bill will only entrench casual work. The bill will also seek to cover employers exposed to up to $39 billion in claims following a court ruling under appeal over misclassified casual workers. Part-time workers in the food, accommodation and retail sectors will have access to more hours, but will forego overtime payments under changes proposed by the Morrison government. The reforms planned for the three sectors hardest hit by COVID-19 are among measures announced under the Omnibus Bill. Under the proposal, part-time employees covered by 12 awards can agree to work additional hours on their usual rate of pay. Employers in 12 award areas hit hardest by the pandemic will be granted exemptions under the Fair Work Act for two years, enabling them to alter the terms of employment of their workers. As well, the Better Off Overall Test, or BOOT, the safety net that underpins the enterprise bargaining system, will not just be diluted to make its interpretation by the Fair Work Commission less rigid, but in some cases also will be able to be effectively bypassed for two years. And unions are opposing the coalition's proposal for casual work, the creation of a new part-time flexi-role and a high bar set for wage theft penalties. The Australian Council of Trade Unions' concerns include the proposed part-time flexi-role, allowing part-time workers in accommodation, food and retail to take on up to 16 hours a week of extra shifts without being paid extra for overtime. ACTU Secretary Sally McManus said Labor and the crossbench should prevent the passage of the reform through the Senate unless changes were made, including granting the Industrial Tribunal powers to force businesses to make some casuals permanent. McManus said she welcomed any laws that would address wage theft, but that the bar the Morrison government proposed was too high. 
And construction, manufacturing and mining are set to cut the most jobs in both the short and long term, and COVID-19 restrictions will only further exacerbate the shrinkage, according to a new report from the National Skills Commission. The report shows that over the next five years, Australia's restrictions on population flows due to the pandemic will subtract 25,000 jobs from the construction industry, or 2.1% of the current workforce. In other words, more than two in every 100 existing workers will lose their job in the next five years. It's worse in manufacturing, where there'll be a 2.5% contraction in the number of workers. Mining and agriculture are expected to be hit hardest, as forecasts of lower exports and higher exchange rates and the speed of technological adoption carve off 27,000 or 11.2% or 16,400 or 4.9% respectively from those industries. However, the NSC notes it has used export forecasts from the International Monetary Fund as a basis of its modelling, and these are likely to change. The winner from COVID-19 is the health sector, with health care and social assistance to see a 205,900 or 11.6% rise in job numbers. More jobs will also come for higher skilled workers in education and training, up 85,100 or 7.9%, and the professional, scientific and technical services, up 65,800 or 5.7% over the next five years. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison has new powers to veto or scrap agreements that state governments and universities reach with foreign powers under laws that could stymie China's Belt and Road Initiative in Australia and further inflame tensions between the trading partners. The laws passed by Parliament on Tuesday will give the Foreign Minister the ability to stop new and previously signed agreements between overseas governments and Australia's eight states and territories and with bodies such as local authorities and universities. Morrison's government will be able to block or curtail foreign involvement in a broad range of sectors, such as infrastructure, trade cooperation, tourism, cultural collaboration, science, health and education, including university research partnerships. An early target is likely to be an agreement the Victoria State Government signed in 2018 to join President Xi Jinping's signature infrastructure building BRI. The laws could further worsen ties between Australia and its largest trading partner, which have been in freefall since April, when the Prime Minister called for an independent probe into the origins of the coronavirus. Beijing has since inflicted a range of trade reprisals, including imposing crippling tariffs on Australian barley and wine, while blocking coal shipments. With the new law, the Morrison government will immediately examine whether to scrap Victoria's Belt and Road Infrastructure Agreement with China. The Foreign Relations Bill gives Victoria three months to explain to the federal government why the deal is in Australia's national interests. Independent Senator Rex Patrick failed to get enough support for the Upper House to insist on an amendment, making the Foreign Minister's decision subject to judicial review. And Australia has issued a warning on trade, saying uncertainty from its souring ties with China and the lingering impact of an earlier drought will push down the value of its agricultural exports. The value of shipments is set to decline 7% in 2020-21, to the lowest level in five years, according to a report from the government forecaster, ABARES. While that's a slight improvement from its September estimate of a 10% slump, the downturn comes in a year of solid domestic production growth. Australia's agricultural industry has borne the brunt of escalating trade tensions between Beijing and Canberra that threaten serious disruption for an expanding number of exporters. The most recent hit came last month, when China slapped anti-dumping duties of up to 212% on Australian wine on top of trade measures that impact other commodities, including timber, barley and lobster. And thermal coal exports to China from Australia's busiest coal terminal have completely stopped amid escalated trade tensions and an unofficial Chinese ban on Australian coal. Newcastle is the largest coal port in the world and trade with China made up 20% of its exports last year. 
No ships have left for China in December, and there are none listed in the schedule leading up to Christmas. Fourth quarter exports to China are down 82%. And the Transport Workers Union will test Qantas' decision to outsource thousands of ground-handling staff in the federal court. The union will allege that Qantas breached the Fair Work Act by outsourcing 2,000 ground-handling roles to third-party contractors like Swissport and Menzies Aviation at 10 airports around the nation. The outsourcing is part of a broader cost-cutting drive at Qantas, which seeks to save $1 billion a year by the 2023 financial year as it recovers from the COVID-19 pandemic. About 370 more ground-handling jobs at budget subsidiaries Jetstar and 50 bus drivers based at Sydney Airport also face outsourcing, but the TWU court action only covers the ground-handlers hit at the mainline brand. And the Council of Financial Regulators has demanded banks, insurers and super funds improve fortification of, of computer systems, issuing a detailed new framework to govern a series of simulated cyber attacks. Banks have been ordered to adopt a proactive rather than a reactive stance of cybersecurity, including hiring new independent teams of red hat hackers to secretly deploy the latest techniques against institutions to expose weaknesses. It comes ahead of industry-wide cyber resilience exercises to be overseen by the Council, comprising Treasury, the Reserve Bank, APRA and ASIC. Under the Cyber Operation Resilience Intelligence-led exercises framework, red teams, who will be shadowed by internal white teams, will use advanced adversary simulation capabilities, including seeking to hack bank staff to get access to internal networks, simulating a real-life adversary in a production environment. The techniques will use opportunistic malicious media drops and social engineering and also malicious insiders to attempt to break defence policies. Once inside systems, adversaries will attempt to initiate payment instructions to steal money from banks. While banks, insurers and some super funds already use red hats to try to identify vulnerabilities and attempt to penetrate systems, under the new framework there will be fewer traditional testing restrictions and attacks will take place over longer time periods, mimicking real-world threats. Under the simulation plans, attacks will go on for 12 to 14 weeks. The Council said the simulations would recreate tactics, techniques and procedures of real-life adversaries, creating and utilising tools, utilising techniques that may not have been anticipated and planned for. And Metcash said sales momentum has continued into the first five weeks of the second half as a supermarket operator and hardware retailer unveiled a profit rebound and higher dividend in the first half. Group revenue increased 12.2% to $7.1 billion and 12.3% to $8.1 billion, including charge-through sales. Underlying profit after tax increased 43% to $129.6 million. Statutory profit after tax of $125.1 million compared to a loss of $151.6 million at the same time last year. And the corporate watchdog's case against mining giant Rio Tinto and its former executives Tom Albanese and Guy Elliott has been pushed back until 2022, so both men can be vaccinated for the coronavirus before travelling to Australia to testify. While the vaccine is expected to be rolled out within months, the Federal Court has taken an ultra-cautious approach and decided to vacate the trial originally scheduled for March 2021, given the high infection rate in the US. The Australian Securities and Investments Commission launched civil court action against Rio Tinto, former CEO of Mr Albanese and CFO Mr Elliott, alleging they engaged in misleading and deceptive conduct over the valuation of the company's Mozambique assets. Rio Tinto, Mr Albanese and Mr Elliott are vigorously defending the Australian case. The case centres on Rio Tinto's 2011 acquisition of some coal assets in Mozambique for US $3.7 billion. Those assets were sold just three years later for only US $50 million. 
ASIC, alleges Rio's 2011 annual report, misrepresented the value of the reserve. ASIC is seeking fines and to have both men barred from being a director of an Australian company. The court had been mulling potentially holding the trial over video conference. However, New Jersey-based Mr Albanese and London-based Mr Elliott both successfully argued it would be fairer to them to be in Australia during the trial to instruct their solicitors. The court was also facing the mammoth task of managing the trial across three locations in separate time zones, Sydney, New Jersey, London. And the Arnott's Group, which owns some of the most well-known biscuit, cooking and soup brands in the supermarket aisle, will pour $8 million into expanding its Campbell's canned soup factory in Shepparton, Victoria, to transform it into a hub for an expected fourfold lift in export volumes. The sizeable investment is being driven by a growing taste for the soups in Asia, in contrast to flatlining and, in some categories, declining sales in Australia. With a Shepparton plant to manufacture an extra 16.5 million kilograms of Campbell's soups and stocks each year, reflecting a 30% lift in volume. However, Arnott's is not overexposing itself to the prickly trade relationship between China and Australia that could endanger its Asian export strategy, as it has done to the nation's wine, coal, barley and beef industries, and is focusing markets on China's doorstep, such as Taiwan, Hong Kong and Thailand. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Tammy Sherwood, CEO of Person-Centred Care Australia, with its app-based mobile care monitoring for the aged. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver about the market and his predictions for next year. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter, talking BizBowDoubleZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 